Welcome to the Rumble Podcast. Here at Rumble, we are a catalyst and a movement that exists to reach men, connect them to Jesus, and equip them to live as kingdom men. In this episode, we're going to our 2021 regular Joe's Conference. This takes place every year in November, and our theme is based around Acts 4.13, how the people looked at Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were regular Joes, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. We want you to sit back, relax, and let this speak to your heart. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you and uh, love being here this morning. Humble to be invited to speak and share and, and love the heart of, of Rumble and uh, what's been growing and developing over the, over the years. Uh, I've known Spud for, for years and thankful for him and, and thankful for his friendship and uh, been watching with interest and with encouragement just uh, of how God has been, been using this ministry and shaping this. And, and I'm expectant of what God wants to do among us today. There's been so much uh, good stuff already shared from uh, the front, and uh, I hope to add to that as we go throughout today. I, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called, of a man called Guy Goma, okay? But Guy Goma became an internet sensation about a decade ago, whenever he mistakenly appeared live on air as a guest on BBC News. It's one of the most memorable TV interviews of all time, okay? Goma was uh, had arrived at the BBC for an interview. An interview as a, let me get this right, as a data support cleanser in the IT department. He had arrived for the interview and he was waiting in the reception area of the BBC TV, our television centre, and at the same time, a man by the name of Guy Cooney, a British technology expert, was in another reception in the same building awaiting a live TV interview on the subject of an Apple computer court case. So they got an expert in and he was ready to share. And about five minutes before the interview, the producer was uh, sent to fetch Guy Cooney from the reception. And he approached, he went into one of the reception areas. He called out the name, is Guy here? And Guy Goma stands up and is ushered in. He gets makeup put on. Doesn't think that's strange, okay? He gets makeup put on and he gets a microphone put on him and he gets ushered into a live TV studio in front of the cameras, but he said later, he said, he did think it was a little strange, but he thought it was part of the interview process for a data cleanser, okay, or a data analysis. Anyway, um, he's introduced on screen, and it is a brilliant little clip because you can just see his face change as the interview announces him as internet expert Guy Cooney. And Goma realizes there's been a misunderstanding. He's visibly shocked and aware he's on live television. He doesn't want to make a scene. You know, he's a nice guy. He doesn't want to make a scene. And so he attempts to answer the questions about the court case. And it's ramifications for the music industry, you know, and he tries to come up with credible answers. This is what, this is what happens. This is the transcript, okay? He says this. Uh, interviewer, good morning. Were you surprised by the verdict today? He says... I'm very surprised to see this because I was not expecting that. When I came, they told me something else and I'm coming. You got an interview, they said, so this is a big surprise. The interviewer, with regards to the cost that's involved, do you think, um, do you think more people are going to be downloading online? He said, actually, if you can go everywhere, you're going to see a lot of people downloading through internet and the website, everything they want. It's going to be an easy way for everyone to get something through the internet. And actually, he was right. 
He was ahead of his time. He predicted it really well. But it was two minutes of TV gold. He was just a regular Joe. And he ends up in the hot seat having to answer the questions. And I wonder, I wonder if we ever have Guy Goma moments. I wonder if we ever find ourselves in a position and a question's asked, and we don't feel equipped. I wonder maybe if we've had moments where it feels like people are looking to us or at us, and we don't feel like we have anything to offer. We don't have the answers. Moments where we feel like an imposter and don't match up to the description that we're meant to have as men or as Christian men or as kingdom men or as leaders in the kingdom of God, or as dads, or as husbands, and in those moments we feel like we're imposters, and we don't measure up. What's, what, what happens to us whenever God calls us to serve him, and we just feel like a regular Joe? What, what happens whenever we have an opportunity to share our faith, and yet we don't know what to say? What happens whenever we want to make an impact for God, and don't feel like we have much to offer? What happens when we feel like Guy Goma or regular Joe? The Apostle Paul was an incredible leader. He spoke the gospel boldly. He proclaimed Jesus passionately. He planted churches aggressively. He discipled people personally, as Rob was just talking about. He wrote half the New Testament, for goodness sake, and he took the gospel to Greece and Rome and to the ends of the earth. And as we compare ourselves to him and maybe other leaders in the Bible, we can be left feeling like we've little to offer. Maybe it's not even comparing yourself to the Apostle Paul. Maybe it's you look around the room, you look around your church, and you think, what have I to offer? I don't compare. And so this morning, what I want to do is consider Paul's life, or more specifically, some specific writings of Paul to the Corinthians, and see where that leaves regular Jews like us. So if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn, turn it or switch it on, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read the first 10 verses together. Um, you're going to hear a lot in the next maybe 25, 30 minutes. And some of it you will hopefully take and God will use, and some of it you can maybe leave, and that's okay. But the next couple of minutes as I read these words, these are the only part of what you're going to hear in the next half an hour that are 100% reliable, 100% true, and 100% from God. This is God's word. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, reading from verse 1, Paul writes, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Sorry, just pausing for a moment. Do you ever know uh, someone who says, you know, uh, they're, they're coming up with a hypothetical situation and say, I have a friend that, dot, 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 okay, but they're really talking about themselves, okay? Paul's doing that here. <laughs> I have a friend that, I know a man that. He's talking about himself and his own spiritual experiences here. Paradise, experience in paradise, being caught up in inexpressible things. Verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. 
Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. This is God's word. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer served God in the, in the 1930s in the midst of Nazi Germany. With the threat of Nazi power growing, many were concerned about the compromise of the church at this time in Germany. And so in 1935, Bonhoeffer created an underground seminary. And, in, and through that seminary, he built and created and had a vision for a new kind of disciple of Jesus, characterized by loyalty to Christ and not loyalty to the system or the government or the Third Reich no matter what the cost. And a friend of Bonhoeffer's came to visit him in the seminary, and, and to be honest, he thought it was a little bit, um, a bit much. And he took Bonhoeffer aside, and in my best German accent, he basically said, you know, this is a bit extreme. Uh, and he kind of thought, you know, what you're doing is just a bit full on compared to really what the church does and what the church is. And Bonhoeffer responded by taking um, his friend to a hill, to the top of a hill that overlooked where Nazi troops, actually where Hitler, the Hitler youth were being trained. And he pointed down that hill and, and he let his friends see what was going on and the kind of strength of the military training and the formation that was going on with, these young, with, the, with this Hitler youth movement. And then Bonhoeffer pointed back to his seminary and he said, you see, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. In other words, the way that they were forming their young leaders and their young men and their young disciples needed to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army, and that was going to be hard. And in the same way, our discipleship to Jesus, our apprenticeship to him, must be stronger than our loyalty to a cause or how we're being formed by the culture around us. You see, this, this must be stronger. This must be stronger than that because that is strong. The way we're being shaped and trained by the culture around us is shaping us to think that the world is all about me and I and, and my rights and my needs and my desires. The, the the culture and the kingdom of digital technology is shaping how we think and how we relate and how we interact. And, and this, our devotion to God's word must be stronger and greater than our consumption of digital technology. This, our, our, our passion for Jesus needs to resist and be greater than our personal preferences. Our hunger for Jesus must overcome our apathy. This must be stronger than that. Because the culture is strong, we need to pay attention to how we're being formed and shaped. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about an intense spiritual experience that he had had in the past. And from the sound of it, he's much to boast about. Heavenly visions, spiritual revelations, out-of-body experiences, hearing the words of God, things that he can't even express with his words, and Paul expressed a lot with his words. And he writes this, he said, I was caught up to paradise and I heard inexpressible things, things that no one has permitted to tell. Now that's a pretty incredible testimony, isn't it? What a great thing to be able to share in a small group, okay? Leader, question. Uh, folks, have, have, has any of you uh, ever encountered God in, in any uh, helpful ways in, in recent years? Um, Maybe people say, yeah, yeah, I attended a worship event, or yeah, I was at a, I was a Rumble conference, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I had a really good quiet time last week. And this guy in the corner, well, yeah, I kind of got called up into the third heaven, and uh, I'd love to talk about it, but I'm not really permitted to, and actually I can't really describe the, the kind of paradise that I was, but I felt pretty close to God in that moment, and, and yeah, that's a pretty good thing. That's the top trumps of small group sharing right there. It's something to boast about. I've experienced God in a way that you haven't. I was caught up in the third heaven. I was caught up in some sort of paradise. And I want to say, and this is important because this must be stronger than that, okay? So it's important that we live and lead out of a rich spiritual experience. It's important that actually that we, we, we take time to not just focus on the public moments of our life, but that we dig deep into the private and a personal, devotional life with God. Just like Rob was telling us about or challenging us about a few minutes ago. Because often God will want us to share the experiences we've had. We've just two men who've just done that a few moments ago. They've shared out of the spiritual benefits or experiences they have had. Like Paul, we should desire to discover the, riches, the richness of the kingdom of God. It's so important that we don't just focus on the public persona as men, but that we pay attention to our spiritual depth. I talk about the image of the iceberg. You know when the power and the strength of the iceberg isn't seen in what's above the surface, but the power and the impact comes in what's seen below the surface. How much attention are we paying to the depth of our discipleship? Because what we learn in the shadows will impact what you do in the spotlight. What we learn in the shadows will impact what we do in the spotlight. So do not mistake or miss the need for depth. Do not mistake the need for a strength in our faith. But don't mistake the need for strength in faith with the temptation to show that we are strong. Leads us on to the second part of Paul's writings here in 2 Corinthians 12. Because rather than going on and writing and writing and speaking and speaking about the rich and intense spiritual experiences he has had, things take a bit of a turn in the passage. Because rather than showing his strength, Paul acknowledges his weakness. You know, I used to assume this last verse in the passage that we read, for when I am weak, then I, then I am strong, used to confuse me. I used to read the Bible and think, when I'm weak, I'm strong. <laughs> no, when, when you're weak, you're weak. <laughs> I, I didn't really get that or, or understand that. Because I used to assume that God used me most when my strengths and abilities were on display to the most amount of people. That the more I displayed a deep devotion to Jesus or, 
or demonstrated the quality of my prayer life or showed my amazing humility. <laughs> you, you know, that we, as we showed, showed, showed that off to others, you know, I assumed that it was through those things that would transfer into the lives of others. And I remember stepping onto the staff team of a, a church much larger than I'd experienced growing up and carrying around with me a desire or maybe a pressure to have it all together, to be an amazing example of faith. I wanted people to have confidence in me. And so I tried to communicate a really compelling vision any times that I was leading. I wanted my fellow leaders to appreciate me, so I tried to come up with really dynamic ideas. I wanted to lead well, so I was desperate to relate to others and get things right. And I wonder if that isn't just the dominant position of Christian leadership, but it's the dominant pressure for Christian men. The pressure to have it all together, to show we are strong. Do you feel that pressure to show strength, to know the answers, to take a lead and to keep it all together? Honestly, I now wish that I hadn't tried to display how capable I was or show how together I was or pretend that I knew it all because I've come to realize the truth of Paul's words that we are used by God, not just in displaying our characters and strength, and he will use those at times in our life, but through most our vulnerability and our weakness, because that's what most displays Christ in us and through us. Of course, it's good to, for people to have confidence in you if you take a lead. We want people to follow our lead and be an example to others. Don't get me wrong. It's important to be trustworthy and reliable for sure. But actually... I've learned that it's better to embrace our weakness and model our vulnerability. Christian discipleship is not, it's not about demonstrating power. It's about admitting our weakness. In a world that emphasizes, be strong, have it all together, get it all right, we are part of a kingdom that values weakness. And if I'm honest for a moment, I often don't feel equipped to do this. I look around rooms I'm in and I feel intimidated. I speak to many people who are way more experienced than me. I meet people who are cooler than me. I encounter people who are smarter than me. And I doubt whether I have anything to offer. I stand on stages or platforms at times and I wonder why I've been invited. And I wonder if I have anything to offer. But actually, isn't that what Christian leadership and discipleship is all about? Where did we ever get the idea that we had anything to offer anyway? We aren't meant to minister out of strength. We are called to minister out of weakness. We're not called to be strong. We're called to rely on the one who is strong. We're not meant to have all the answers, but we're invited to walk with the one who is the answer. Life is exhausting enough without having to walk around and without having to try to pretend that we have it all together. And I sang it when I was six, by the way, in church. We are weak, but he is strong. I believed it as a six-year-old. I sang it as a six-year-old. And then I grew up and I got more mature in faith. No. I wish earlier in my faith I'd shown more weakness. This is what Paul says. He's, he's talking about how God said to him that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
You know, it's not our achievements that best showcase the grace of God. It's our helplessness. Paul goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God will use the strengths he has given you and praise God for them. And there are many in this room, I believe. But thank God for our weaknesses because it is through those that God's strength is often most clearly displayed. You are weak. He is strong. And the more we acknowledge our weakness, the more space or the more room we're giving for Christ's power in our lives to be seen, You see, when we do things out of our strength or our ability or our gift, then it's easy for people to look at us and understand. Well, of course he can do that because it's him, because he's got that gift or he's got that ability. But actually, whenever we we acknowledge our weakness, actually we give space and room for people to look at our lives and say, but God... It wouldn't be for him. He couldn't do that. He couldn't say that. But God, they were unschooled and ordinary men. But as people looked at them in the early church in Jerusalem, as the authorities looked at them, they were amazed because God's power was working through them. And they looked at them and they said, but they're unschooled and ordinary. How? And didn't Jesus show us? Didn't Jesus show us what vulnerability and weakness looked like? from the one who was strong, rather than arriving on earth with an army from heaven, he came in the form of a baby's cry. Is there anything more vulnerable than that? Rather than being born in a crowded inn, he came to an empty manger. Rather than walking around like a celebrity or a king, Isaiah said there was nothing in his appearance that would make us desire him. And rather than placing himself at the epicenter of culture, he grew up in a backwater town away from the public eye. Always an encouragement for people from Lurgan. I think I see Phil down there. I think I see Phil. In a world that emphasizes strength, we're part of a kingdom that values weakness. Here's the encouragement. If you feel empty, God fills empty things. How do we know that? He filled the empty manger in a stable. He filled the empty jar of a widow. He filled the empty hands of a beggar. He fills the empty hearts of his children. And he stepped out of an empty tomb. Full of life. God is attracted to emptiness. And so when you are at your most empty, it's when you can be most filled. Or as Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness or emptiness. The people of Israel expected the Messiah to be a dominant ruler who came in power. They anticipated a Messiah who's going to rescue them politically, overthrow the Roman Empire, and reestablish Israel's power in the world. God had something different in mind. In the ancient world, a leader rode on a horse to declare war. Jesus came on a donkey to signify peace. He was signaling this isn't a political 
or an earthly or a physical kingdom. It's not a military might. It is a spiritual kingdom. And I'm coming to lead not with violence or with hostility or bloodshed, but in humility and service. And in the very next chapter, what does he do? He stoops down and washes feet. (laughs) Weakness, sacrifice, service. Can you imagine in today's celebrity-driven world, a pop star or a I don't know anyone else arriving to a concert of adoring fans and rather than checking that all the requirements were in place, the first thing they do is clean the dressing room. The way of Jesus isn't about status, but about sacrifice. It's not up, but it's down. It's not to be served, but to serve. There's a story told about the Irish explorer or adventurer Ernest Shackleton, who ran an, an article, sorry, an advertisement in a newspaper in 1914 to recruit a crew for his Antarctic expedition. And uh, this is how he tried to recruit people for his expedition. He said, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, no financial reward, honor and recognition, and event of success. It attracted 5,000 applicants. You see, rather than outline all the benefits, here's all the things that you'll get. This will be cool. (laughs) This will be great. We'll have lots of fun. It'll be great banter. You know, we'll hang out together. You'll put it in your CV. It's going to be hard. You might die. There's going to be a cost. Come anyway. I wonder sometimes if we've set the bar too low. We've set the bar too low and we haven't acknowledged the cost. We haven't acknowledged the service. We haven't acknowledged the sacrifice because that is the way of discipleship. It's not about all the benefits. And please hear me today. In Christ, there are numerous blessings. There are numerous rewards for followers of Jesus, potentially more, in the, well, definitely more in the future than in the present. But also, there's a cost. And so just for the rest of my time this morning, I just want to address one thing. Where do we take our weakness and vulnerability? How do we fuel this kind of posture? Because perhaps, as you said here, you can identify all too well with Paul. You feel the thorn in your flesh. You're all too aware of your weakness. You feel greatly a sense of shortcoming, and you've tried, you've pleaded with God to remove the thorn in your life. And for whatever weakness, for whatever habit, for whatever addiction, for whatever stronghold the enemy is using today or in your life to bind you in chains, I'm not here to give you a coping mechanism or a sin avoidance technique or a self help mantra. I'm here to remind you that Christ died for the ungodly and his grace is sufficient for you in your weakness and that his power is made perfect through that. You are weak, but he is strong. And I love this quote. I heard it this summer. It says this. I think it will come on the screen. It says, give up the struggle and the fight. Relax in the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus. Look up into his lovely face and as you behold him, He will transform you into his likeness. You do the beholding and God does the transforming. There's no shortcut to holiness. Was that line that caught me? You do the beholding and God does the transforming. You know, are you beholding Jesus in all his fullness? Because God wants to reveal himself to us, but I think sometimes we're too caught up in the cycle of being better, doing more stuff, and being strong, rather than being captivated by the greatest 
thing and the greatest person. I read this challenging question from Paul Tripp last year. He says, does your culture silence confessions of struggle? Can I ask that again? (laughs) Say that again. Does your culture silence confessions of struggle? My question today is, what if we were more open about the weakness and the vulnerability in our life? Because I believe Jesus wants to meet us in our weakness and in our emptiness. Something I notice about how Paul discipled Timothy, and indeed the way Jesus discipled the twelve, is how he took them into the deeper parts of his life. It wasn't just a meeting once a fortnight, but it was an invitation into the tears of Gethsemane, or the aftermath of the riots in Ephesus. It's the way of ordinary discipleship. You know, Jesus, the location of Jesus' ministry wasn't confined to the synagogue or the religious locations of the day as miracle happened in ordinary homes and in common streets. I've read that out of the 132 recorded encounters that Jesus had with people, six were in the temple, four were in the synagogue, and 122 were in the mainstream of life. Cana and Galilee was pretty, pretty obscure part of the country, and yet that was the location of his first miracle. Other miracles were in humble homes, not impressive stadiums. He used fishing boats as pulpits, dining tables to challenge and gardens to pray. He met ordinary people like villagers, carpenters, farmers, parents and children, ministered in dusty roads, stony beaches and fishing boats. Jesus honored lowly people and was present in the most overlooked of places. And so if Jesus embraced ordinary settings like those for the context of his ministry, then how much more or what makes us think that he wouldn't use the ordinariness of and weakness of our life to display his glory through us? We've been fooled. We've been fooled into thinking that if our lives aren't significant, then, sorry, spectacular, then that they can't be significant. If, we, if our lives aren't spectacular, then they can't be significant. But Jesus transformed the ordinary. Water into wine, bread and fish multiplied to feed a crowd, mud in the process of healing a blind man. Do we see the ordinariness of our lives as a setting for, for, uh, for God's kingdom to grow in us? And through us, Michael Horton wrote this, writes this. We've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. If you feel ordinary, good news. God uses ordinary things as context for his ministry. It's the way of ordinary discipleship. And I hope and I wonder if you can relate to that today. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We have a boast. We have a boast to make. We have someone to boast about. Not ourselves, but in him. Let me finish today with one story and one Bible verse. And then I'm just going to pray. Over the past year, I've been spending time with a young man who came to live in Belfast in January time to play professional sport here in Northern Ireland. And at 20 years old, he found himself in a brand new city, a new environment, a new team, um, and competing at a high level, but arrived injured as well feeling pretty weak, 
feeling vulnerable, feeling unsettled, trying to navigate, settle in. But he sought to follow Jesus. As I began to spend time with him, I began to ask him about his motivations and his hopes. And obviously some of those hopes were for the pitch and for the team that he was playing in and for his sport and his career. But he began to talk about the hope that he had to bring an influence where God had placed him. He believed that God had brought him to Belfast. I asked him recently about how he goes about sharing, seeking to share faith with his teammates. And I expected, you know, a kind of standard cliche answer, you know, expected, well, just, you know, think about my conduct on the pitch, and I, you know, uh, maybe try to take a conversation or two in the dressing room, you know, or try to, you know, reflect Jesus and how I play or who I am, and all of those are good answers, of course. But what he said surprised me. This is what he said. I wrote it down. I feel like God has given me a particular gift and ministry of noticing people who are on the fringes, who seem vulnerable, and trying to draw alongside them as Jesus' hands and feet. Recognizing and realizing that God has a heart for those who might be on the fringes, who might be vulnerable, who might find it difficult setting in, settling in, and through his posture, having a posture towards the weak and the vulnerable, and trying to look out for them, drawn alongside them, and yes, using his life to share faith with them. That young lad settling in their brand new team, if I said the name, you would recognize who, who it is. Settling into a new team and a new environment, I think has had four players at church with him in the last few months. 20 years old, new city, new team, new context. There's now an alpha course that's happening in the context of that sports team. I think we should pray for that, by the way, and be praying and be in prayer for that. There's an alpha course happening every Wednesday night. Players from that team come, and, uh, and this young man's at the heart of it and at the center of it, inviting his teammates. But how and why? Not because he's standing up in the midst of the changing rooms and giving speeches, but because he's drawn alongside and recognizing those who are weak and vulnerable at the fringes and displaying God's heart to them. His life reminds me of Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note. Took note of what? Took note that these men had been with Jesus. Their ordinariness pointed to Jesus, but there was one, one distinguishing mark. And the distinguishing mark was not their accomplishments or achievements or intellect or experience. The distinguishing mark was, what they, was that they had been with Jesus. What is going to mark us out in this generation? What's going to mark you out as kingdom men? That you have been with Jesus. Not your strength or superiority, but your ordinary, ordinariness mixed with a dynamic presence and power of God in and through our lives. I'm going to pray in a moment. I, I just wondered, I don't, by the way, do kind of dramatic altar calls. I don't even know how to do them, if I'm honest. There's another bit of weakness and vulnerability, okay? I don't have my band up, you know, beside me to play any music either. But I just wondered if we could take a moment 
And if there's anyone here who would just simply say, I acknowledge that I'm ordinary, or I feel empty, or I feel broken or vulnerable, I wonder if you would do something that maybe needs courage or strength and just stand where you are. And what I'm going to do is invite people who are just around you to pray for you, to maybe stretch out a hand and pray over you and to pray for you. Um, And so if that's you, I'd just love to invite you. If you say, I am weak, I am vulnerable, I am empty, would you stand and just acknowledge that before others, uh, before each other today, um, and admit your weakness and vulnerability? So give you a moment to do that, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite people around you, or these, these men who are being bold and courageous to stand, who are saying, I just feel weak, I feel ordinary. But I want... But I know, sorry, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I'm going to pray for Christ's power to be seen and his strength to be seen in our lives through our ordinariness, for God to meet us in our emptiness. So if you're near these men who are standing, why don't we just maybe stretch out a hand towards them? Maybe even if you just pray, maybe one or two would just pray. Um, I'm going to lead you in prayer in a moment. But rather than just do that at the front, why don't we do that across the room? And just pray for these men for a moment. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We really hope and pray that God's word has spoken to your heart and that his Holy Spirit has empowered you to go out and be an effective man. That people would look at you and really take note that you've been with Jesus. If we can help you or your church in any way in engaging and in reaching men, both inside and outside the church, this is a huge need in our time and in our world at this moment. Please go onto our website, rumble.vision, and send us an email, reach out to us. We would love to get a coffee and to talk to you about some of the things that we have that can help you at a local level. But we do hope that you can join us again soon for our next episode. Be blessed and we'll see you again soon.